Today we're reading from Deuteronomy, and then we're going to jump forward and read from Mark chapter 7. Um, so let's start from Deuteronomy. You'll find the, uh, the passages in your uh, zine, zine. And uh, yeah, I'll start with chapter 14. You are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Do not eat anything detest any detestable thing. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the, ch the cud. However, of those that chew the cud or that have a divided hoof, you may not eat the, ca the camel, the hare, or the hyrax. Although they chew the cud, they do not have a divided hoof. They are ceremonially unclean for you. The pig is also unclean. Although it has a divided hoof, it does not chew the cud. You are not to eat their meat or touch their carcasses. Now I'm gonna leave chapters 16 and 17 for you to uh, read at home. Um, but we'll jump down to chapter 18. The nations you will dispossess listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to them. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see the great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like, from, like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name Anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. And Mark chapter 7 The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating foods, food with their hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, 
you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus asked the crowd to him, called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. This is the word of the Lord. See you, Patterson kids. <laughs> hey, um, it's been hard for everybody, and uh, and uh, you know we've had our challenges as well. I've got to tell you, it's so great to have people here. I know there'll be starts and stops to it all, but um, but to be here on a Sunday with just four or five people really isn't joy. I mean, there's some joy in it, but I'm so glad that there's more than just the four of us, and so um, so I'm just glad to be here. Also, Myra's passing, I mean, you, if you didn't know Myra, what would you know? And you can go and watch SBS. But she is the person who has been a member of either St. Philip's or the Garrison Church for the longest, uh, both churches. She once told me that she spent uh, three or four days or weeks pulling off plaster off these walls. It wasn't, there was a time when they said, we don't like sandstone, let's plaster it. And then there was a time when they said, let's get the plaster off again. And if you look closely, you can see the white marks all over it. That's Myra. That's Myra's hands on this church. Shall I pray? Mm, let's pray. Father, may the words that we hear today with our outward ears, may, may, may they be so grafted inwardly in our hearts that we may listen and learn and love Jesus and worship Jesus. We pray this asking to be remade in his likeness with a new heart and in the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I've said this before, but it's worth exploring again. Christianity is first a matter of the heart. I'll say it again. Christianity is first a matter of the heart before it is anything else. From your inner being to the world is the movement inherent in the Christian gospel. From your inner being to the world. And since your heart is important, your ears and your eyes are key because they are the primary organs through which your heart is diagnosed, said Jesus, and the life changed from within to the world. Jesus said in that passage that was just read out to us that Isaiah was right about the hypocrites, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Mark 7, verse 6. In the Alpha course that we're in the middle of doing, there's an interview with a woman called Jackie Pullinger. In the 1960s, she went as a missionary to 
Hong Kong, Kowloon's famous and lawless walled city. And she says this in Alpha. She says, God wants us to have soft hearts and hard feet. The trouble with many of us, she says, is that we have hard hearts and soft feet. Well, I don't want a calloused heart. I want calloused feet for the journey because it's a tough journey. So I'm going to need calloused feet. I don't want a calloused heart. So today we talk about your heart. How does it become soft to God's will and to others' lives? And because we're talking about the heart, we're going to talk about the ears because there's a kind of listening that lets God in. There's a kind of listening that keeps him out and a kind of listening that lets God in. We're in the fourth week in a series called The Verbs of Discipleship in Deuteronomy, which is the Old Testament's manifesto of discipleship. Just like John's Gospel, in Deuteronomy, uh, Israel has been brought thus far out of slavery, but they're still further still through the middle bit, which is what we're in, through the wilderness, to the edge of the promised land, and Moses there on the edge of the promised land addresses them for the last time some 34 centuries ago, I ride my bike around here and I think, where does your story begin as I look at people? I don't know the answer to that question. I know that the answer to where my story begins is at least 34 centuries ago. And there'll be people here who think, out there, you know, who think, oh, I don't know, it begins with Australia or something, I don't know. And they come in here and they say, what are you even looking at Deuteronomy for? And that's because my story begins with the creation of the world, the calling of Abraham, the Exodus, uh, the kingship of David, and the like. Moses tells them there on the edge of the promised land to remember the Lord, to love him, to worship him, to listen to him, to fear him. Moses says to them, follow the Lord, but Jesus says to us, follow me, my sheep, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. So today we learn to listen to the Lord. Hear, O Israel. Shema Israel, if you were listening two weeks ago. Now I assigned listening as the verb of the day, even though it's only mentioned a few times in the section we're looking at, chapters 14 through 18, but it needs its own week. So here we are. The main reason is that in chapter 18, verse 14 which is on page 8 of your order of service, it says, Moses says this, the nations you will dispossess listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so, to listen to them. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, says Moses, from among you, from your Israelites, we must Listen to him. Just keep those three words in mind. We must listen to him. We'll come to who that prophet is in a moment's time. Listening is a common word in the Bible, and it's easy to see why. Hearing is a universal activity, and it hurts when it goes away. It's usually connected with the ear, as it says in Proverbs, ears that shema, ear, eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. Some people, of course, uh, hear with their hands, 
but they're still listening. But the writers of the Bible use it to mean more than let sound waves enter your ears, and it's more than just hearing to understand as comprehension. As Rowan said a moment ago, in the Hebrew, it can also mean pay attention, listen in, focus on, which is why you can listen, but not listen. Jesus said it, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. You've got ears, it doesn't mean you're going to hear. That's why there's a challenge. If you've got ears, then I'm urging you to hear, which means to pay attention with a soft heart. Shema, or listen or hear, means to respond. That's why in the Psalms, when you go, hear me, O God, what you're saying is you're not responding to me. Respond to me, God. And in the Bible, there's no separate word for obey. In the Bible, if you wanted to say, I will listen and do what you say, that is, I'll listen and obey, you use the single word, Shema, I've heard you, which means I'll do what you say. And so in Hebrew, listening and doing are two sides of the same coin. Jesus took them apart to put them back together again when he said famously, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on sand. Rock. I said that to see if you were listening. Listening. The house stands, even with the storms of the storm of God's judgment. So let us listen in today, if you've got ears. Leaning in, thirsty, with soft hearts, revering the one who speaks, not me, the Lord in his word. And what are we to hear? Well, in Deuteronomy, it's hear these words I'm reading to you. And these words that, I, that were read to you a moment ago, and I'll read to you again, they are some strange stuff. Not 14 verse 1 on page 7. That's not strange. For you are children of the Lord your God. It's not so strange for a Gentile Christian, even if miraculous, that I have been adopted as a son, you are a daughter of God. But the next bit is the strange bit. It says, therefore, since you're children of the Lord, don't cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead. And so is prohibited for ancient Israel self-mutilation, and tattoos, and gone is a haircut for the dead. Now, there might be people in the room that have had certain mental health issues in the past, or maybe you have a tattoo, and you're worried now, because after all, the Bible says it, you see. But you must remember that this was said to the ancient people of God about to go into a foreign land. It's context-specific where the nations there associated these sorts of things with pagan gods, and Moses is saying the same thing he says to us today, no matter how you cut your hair or no matter how many tattoos you have, the same thing is true, don't be like the nations around you or worship their gods. But tattoos are there and so is don't eat pigs. I mean, that's there too. But how many had bacon in the last 24 hours? Hmm. Are you disobeying the Lord? Verse 3, do not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. So you can go and have an antelope burger for dinner. 
if the Lord Nelson would serve it to you. Just don't put any bacon or cheese on it. Deuteronomy is the second reading of the Torah, the Jewish law, the story of God's dealings with ancient Israel, but embedded into these chapters and in Leviticus are very strange and very Israel-specific matters to adhere to. And they're strange, by the way. I lived in New York City for three years, subway into Brooklyn, and I'm staring at difference. I'm staring at difference. Now, granted, it's through the lens of 19th century European Judaism, but I'm staring at difference. You ever seen a kosher kitchen? <laughs> Look at how specific, verse 6. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. Now, I feel like I'm going to need a Venn diagram at this point. However, Moses says, of those that chew the cud or that have a divided hoof, you may not eat the camel, the hare, the harracks, although they chew the cud, they do not have divided hoof. They are ceremonially unclean for you. We'll come back to that. The pig is also unclean. There it is. That's, that's the Jewish thing, right? It's also the Pulp Fiction thing. It's a filthy animal. Although it has the divided hoof, says Moses, it does not chew the cud. You are not to eat their meat or touch their carcasses. You'll be unclean. Now, the reason I've included these verses, we come back in and the first words you hear are, don't eat any detestable thing. You're like, welcome back to church. <laughs> don't eat big. I've included these verses because if you read Deuteronomy and Leviticus, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff like this that strains to our ears. Notions of clean and unclean, and it only starts with food. It ends up with blood and all sorts of stuff. And what to do about people who are unclean. Now, it might seem strange, by the way, but in Psalm 19 that we read, the, the Torah is honey. The Torah is gold. The Torah is uh, joy to the heart. And you're like, what do I do with these verses? I have a friend who, when he became a Christian in, say, his early 20s, he wanted to fully obey God. And so he set about reading Genesis to Revelation and set about keeping all the laws that were written in there and, as you can imagine, failed dismally. He didn't fail at one thing, by the way, which is that he was desperate to read the Bible and take it seriously. But he was wrong about how to read these commands. He no longer walks with the Lord. So as we listen and obey, what are we to do with this? Are we supposed to ignore this bit and pay attention to the bits you like, like love your enemies, judge not? Do we cherry pick which parts of the Bible to listen to? So, two points today, if you're following the outline on page 10, we are not cherry picking, firstly. Secondly, we are pearl seeking. I'll explain that. We're not cherry picking, we are pearl seeking. So firstly, we're not cherry picking. <laughs> the accusation of I've heard it many times in my life, is that Christians don't really accept the whole Bible. We just cherry-pick the bits we want and ignore the rest. Any West Wing fans here? Just a couple. There's a scene early on in West Wing, it's a famous scene to watch, where Jed Bartlett, the President of the United States, famously smacks down a shock jock, Jenna Jacobs. 
Dr. Jacobs quotes a verse from Leviticus promoting marriage between a man and a woman and condemning homosexuality. And Jed Bartlett smacks her down. It takes about three minutes, but it's classic West Wing. And at the end of it, I'm like, yeah, go get her. And then I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Jed Bartlett, I should say Aaron Sorkin. It's just Aaron Sorkin's voice here, of course. Jed Bartlett, without saying it, accuses her of cherry-picking. You're quoting Leviticus, but you're ignoring clean and unclean laws about handling pigs or planting crops or wearing clothing or blood emissions or stoning people for dishonouring their parents. In other words, in Aaron Sorkin's schema, Jenna Jacobs is not only a bigot but a hypocrite. It's a double whammy. And the proof is that she cherry-picks certain passages and does so to exert power. And it's considered a mic drop in the show. It's like, yeah. And of course, anybody who's never dipped their feet into the Bible at all will think, that makes sense. Like you've got to... Now, such an accusation is quite common, if you're willing to hear it. How do, we, how do we respond? Well, first, it's just worth acknowledging that it's possible that we might be cherry-picking. That's possible. There are people who give undue weight to certain sections of the Bible for their own gain. Jesus said as much about the Pharisees. You've got to pulse-check your heart. But more importantly, the accusation is to misunderstand the Bible. That is, the Bible is not a flat collection of books, all with the same weight. It has movement and direction and progress embedded within it. It is not a series of sayings, all in competition with one another. And I dare say that you could argue that the Quran is a series of sayings that you could argue are in competition with each other. In other words, the Bible is not a cherry tree and each cherry or each verse of the Bible is the same thing. That is to misunderstand the Bible. So that is, I take Deuteronomy very seriously even as I chow down on a bacon and cheeseburger. You say, well, you're a hypocrite. You're cherry picking this bit and not that. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. The Bible is a story, and it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, conflict and resolution with a climax. There's a character in the story called Israel who is to be different to the nations around them, and that character finds fulfillment in the hero of the story, whose name is Jesus Christ. There's villains in the story, sin and death and Satan himself, and there's victory over these villains as the hero is raised to life after a crucifixion, and then God gives to the whole world what he always promised to Israel. That's why the New Testament says that the Torah and the prophets always speak about this gospel, this news that we now have, given the story. And so the Bible is a love story, not a cherry tree. It's a strange love story. It's a love story that'll bug you. It's not the sort of love story where you say, oh, you know, I only like love stories that are mushy. This is not a mushy love story. But it is a love story nonetheless because it comes out of the love of God. And to say that we should focus on food laws as much as to love your enemies is to be like a child who wanders into a movie halfway. He has no frame of reference. But we have a frame of reference. It's called the New Testament. 
And to be sure, the book of Deuteronomy has particular views on human sexuality. In Deuteronomy, there's no mention of homosexuality, but there is mention of adultery, incest, bestiality, and prostitution. They're all there. And in Deuteronomy, they deserve the wrath of God, the justice of God. Homosexuality is mentioned in Leviticus, but not Deuteronomy, but is also from the same law, from the same God. And if you go to the New Testament, in the story of God, the way you live your life with respect to your body is still important. The desire to live in a way that pleases God with your body is still there for followers of Jesus, such that, for example, Paul can say that if you unite a believer in Jesus with a prostitute, then you brought Jesus into bed with you. That's the argument in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. And it's all using Deuteronomy language. So Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies, not honour self or desire, honour God with your bodies. That price that was paid is the blood of Christ, and so the argument is, Stop sinning sexually or positively on a God with your bodies. Now, that's to read the commands of the New Testament and the Old Testament in light of the mega story. It's not cherry picking. That's why stones never get picked up anymore. I mean, Jesus handled that in John chapter 8 with the woman caught in adultery. And the idea of clean and unclean are throughout Deuteronomy expressed, among other things, in food laws. In the Torah, you can be unclean ceremonially, physically, like with blood, spiritually, and morally. And attached to this idea is the, is the words detestable to the Lord. There's, in other words, there are things that, are, that he doesn't like and there are things that he likes. There's things that he will embrace and things that he will put you out of the camp for, you see. Now, some people mock this idea as primitive and tribal, and at one level it is primitive, not in this pejorative sense of that word, it's primitive in the sense that it comes first. But followers of Jesus don't just reject this as old and Old Testament and dumb and aren't you glad we don't do this anymore. Instead, they lean in and listen with an open heart. What's God got to say to me now? We aren't cherry-picking, we're looking at the whole story. And so we go to Mark 7. Jesus said, listen to me. There it is. Shema me, everyone. Understand this. Nothing outside a person, for example, a pig, a dead one, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. And by the way, Jesus is now dismantling all sorts of religious practices here. Jesus says that stuff just flushes through you. Bacon will flush through you. It might take some time. You know, it's some roughage, but bacon will flush through you. By the way, you think I'm being crude. This is just what Jesus, Jesus says this. Passes through you. And so Jesus is saying the matters of clean and unclean are a matter of the heart. So 7 verse 21, for it is from within out of a person out of a person's heart that the evil thoughts come the sexual immorality the pornea the theft the murder whatever the hate the adultery the greed 
Mark 7, verse 19, in in making this observation, Jesus declared all foods clean. So you're free to have a bacon and cheeseburger. You're free to have that. And to touch dead bodies and, you know, whatnot. Blood, it's a great thing, no longer unclean. Yay, blood, I say. What makes the Jed Bartlett scene, or rather the Aaron Sorkin scene, so puerile is that it assumes that a Christian has never read the Torah and figured out the obvious problem. We've been reading this book for 2,000 years. Mind you, I spoke to a beautiful uh, young man this morning in his, I guess, 60s or 70s. He became a Christian maybe seven or eight years ago at St. Philip's, and he was raised a Catholic and went to church until he dropped off and then came back uh, with us. And I said to him, did you know about these laws? Yeah, I know about Judaism. Did your priest ever talk to you about it? No. Did it ever worry you that you weren't obeying God in some area of your life? No. So you just went ahead and ate pork without asking why you can if God said you can't. Yes, I think that's a very dangerous place to be in. That's why it's very important for us to actually consider these matters. He, of course, now is soaking up every sermon because it's all new for him. He says, we didn't do it like this in the Catholic Church, is what he says. And yet... I need to say, even though all foods are clean, that's picked up in the dreams to Peter in Acts and the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, even though that's true, the notions of clean and unclean still matter. In fact, they're part of my testimony. I was unclean, but Jesus made me clean. It's the core of who I am. It's why I get up every morning with confidence. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean. That's my story. And yet the Apostle Paul can write, because of the gospel, he can say of the sexually immoral, the greedy, those addicted to wine and the idolater, he can say, that's what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. (laughs) You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen? And so we're not cherry-picking. Secondly, we are pearl Seeking. What do I mean? The Bible is a story seeking a resolution, seeking a resolution. Paradise lost, paradise regained. But how does that happen? Well, in Matthew 13, verse 45, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Looking everywhere in the bazaars, and the, you know, he's going, he's a guy looking for pearls. Then he finds a pearl, one of great price, great value. And he goes away and sells everything he had and bought it, that pearl of great price. Jesus is the pearl of great price, and we do well to give up everything to follow him. Let nothing stop you. But allow me to stretch the analogy further. Do any of you or all of you know about Mother of Pearl? You seen it? I googled it for two minutes. So if you're a marine biologist, please come and tell me later what I got wrong. As far as I can tell, Mother of Pearl is the home or the birthing place of a pearl. It is the material, organic, in which pearls are composed. And Mother of Pearl, not just the pearl, Mother of Pearl is itself beautiful. 
and is the context in which you'll find the pearl perfectly made. The whole Bible is like mother of pearl, the context in which we find Jesus Christ. So we're not cherry-picking different bits, we're pearl-seeking. And because of that, we listen to the whole Bible in context. And so pearl-seeking, looking to be clean, we seek the true Passover lamb. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, not read to you, but you can see it there on page uh, 7, you get the regulations for the Jewish Passover. Verse 1, observe the month of Aviv and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God. Since in the month of Aviv, he brought you out of Egypt by night. So every year, sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God an animal from your flock or your herd. Now, that was 2,000 years old when Jesus got to it and 4,000 years old now. Jewish people still observe the Passover. But can you see, pearl-seeking, how a follower of Jesus both honours the Passover and doesn't do it. At least not the way the Torah said to do it. In John 1, John saw Jesus coming towards him and John exclaimed, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Passover Lamb. And it was deliberately at the time of Passover when Jesus took bread, gave thanks broke the bread and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this Passover now in remembrance of me. He broke and gave bread because he is the lamb sacrificed to make us clean. So we're pearl seeking, not cherry picking. And we seek the prophet to come in Deuteronomy chapter 17 at the top of page 8. Look at it for me, look at it with me, look at this remarkable prophecy. Moses is about to die, the people are saying, we can't see you and live, so we're going to need someone to give us your words. God is that serious. And uh, in 18 verse 15, uh, Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, a prophet to come from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him, not the other dinner voices. And God raised up Joshua after Moses. Yeshua, the Lord saves. In Greek, it's the word Jesus. Chapter 18, verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words into his mouth, this prophet's mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him, says God. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. So you could find yourself judged and going to hell by listening to the wrong person. And we're being told to listen to the prophet like Moses. Listen to him. In the Transfiguration in the New Testament, Jesus appears with Moses and with Exodus illusions. Mark 9 verse 7, a voice came from the cloud this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And in John 6, after Jesus feeds the people bread in the desert like Moses, the people rightly assume that this is the prophet to come. John 6, verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet 
who is to come into the world. So we know that by the New Testament, the thought that the prophet to come had been fulfilled in Joshua or anybody else wasn't, uh, was still alive. That desire to find that one was still alive. And so pearl-seeking, not cherry-picking, we seek also the true king or messiah. In chapter 17, it's on page 8, top of page 8, verse 14, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like the other nations around us. Don't do that. That's a mistake. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses, a, a king after the Lord's heart. And then in chapter 17, you get the prerequisites for this king. This anointed one, this Messiah, must be an Israelite, verse 15. And verse 16, must not rely on military strength. Who does this remind you of? They must not take you back to slavery, but rather forward to the kingdom of God, verse 16. They must not be sexually immoral, verse 17. They must not accumulate wealth, verse 17. They must have God's words in them, close to them, in verse 18. The king must obey God, verse 19, and be humble with others, verse 20. Who else is this but Jesus, the true king? The whole Bible yearns forward for it. John 6, verse 15, after identifying Jesus as the prophet to come, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He knew it had to be another way. So Jesus is the true prophet to come. He's the true king. He's the true priest and sacrifice, Passover lamb the one who gave up his life so that you and I could live, the one who became unclean so that you and I would be clean before a holy God. Dr. Paul Brand is a hand surgeon and a follower of Jesus in the United States, and he wrote a beautiful essay reflecting on the gospel through the lens of hands, which, by the way, are miraculous. Dr. Brand says, And then came the hands of Christ the physician, once he touched a woman who suffered with a hemorrhage, knowing that by Jewish law, she would make him unclean. He touched those with leprosy, also unclean, people no one else would touch. In small and personal ways, his hands set right what had been disrupted in creation. Dr. Brand goes on and says, those hands were pierced on the cross. We made him unclean, he made me clean. And those hands then went ahead and performed heart surgery on me. The very thing promised in Deuteronomy, Moses says, circumcise your hearts so that you are given not a grudging, faint-hearted, calloused, hard heart or a small one, but a new one. Christianity is a matter of the heart, of the new heart, of your inner being and from your inner being then to the world. So you need to ask him to save you and to give you a new heart. Remember that we don't want hard hearts and soft feet collapsing with a little bit of persecution, with hard work. No, what does 
uh, Jackie Pullinger say, God wants us to have soft hearts and hard feet. And he can give you both so that we can both listen to Jesus with a soft heart and obey him with hard feet. Let's pray. And if you could turn to page 11, we're going to pray by confessing our sins. And we've chosen this confession because uh, of the lines, wash away our wrongdoing and cleanse us from our sin and renew a right spirit within us, which is give me a new heart. But let me prepare you to pray this prayer by using the words of Jesus. Jesus continued, what comes out of a person is what defiles them all. For from within, out of a person's heart, the evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these things come from inside and defile a person. Jesus didn't say this so that you walk away and feel bad. He said it so that you'd come to him to have your heart remade. Let us confess our sins then to the Lord our God. Lord God, we have sinned against you. We have done evil in your sight. We are sorry and repent. Have mercy on us according to your love. Wash away our wrongdoing and cleanse us from our sin. Renew a right spirit within us and restore us to the joy of your salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Do the band want to come forward? Let me read this word to you as they do. From Titus chapter 1. When the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out generously on us through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life, this is a trustworthy saying. Amen.